Oi. 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 IGA is shopping nights. IGA where the price is right. Seaford North IGA for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express. There's nothing quicker. Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. My name's Ilana Rasbash, and we are broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from the Karam Karam Swamp off unceded Aboriginal land. Tonight I am joined by Tita Shing. He's an architect educator, author, innovator, and social advocate with a passion for narrative design. He has taught master and bachelor level design studios at our alma mater, RMIT University, and continues to share his thoughts and ideas by co-hosting the hugely successful and popular Cantonese language podcast on a weekly basis, Archie Podcast HK. Titus collaborated with Hong Kong Shenzhen by City Biennale of Urbanism and Architecture and has been involved in various curations and publications locally and internationally. We're so lucky to have Titus living in Melbourne and being able to share some insight with us tonight about the world of architecture and architectural discourse in Hong Kong and across the world and give us an English language insight because this show is exclusively mostly in Cantonese, which I'm really excited about um, to peek into that and also having your first appearance on live radio, so a bit of a live radio to podcast crossover tonight. So welcome, Titus. Hello, everyone. I'm Titus. It's really great to be here and it's so exciting to be on live. Thank you so much for coming on. Ah. Well, you know the first question, but yeah. I'm going to ask a different one tonight. I want to oh. know what brought you into architecture? What what made you want to become an architect? It is actually starting from my secondary school. At as the moment that I actually didn't study art or design, but uh, I was involved in a lot of like art and design for the classes and and also for clubs. And I always knew that I really liked that and want to pursue a career in that that view. But I didn't know whether I'm going for like interior design, graphic design or whatever. At that time, I was um, lucky to be in an open day of a, a university. And I saw that amazing physical model that is on the display and uh, an architectural faculty. So I was like, it would be so amazing if we can, like I can't actually study architecture and just having fun doing projects and building models while um, forget about all the exams. And that's what I was thinking at that moment. But I didn't know that it actually takes a lot of hard work. <laughs> yes, everyone's kind of regret when they step into the, the faculty and they realize there are a lot of work. But at the end of the day, after all the like studying, I realized it is actually such a fantastic 
thing to do because you get to know so many things from like the social perspective, the history, historical perspective, everything that you can actually like be interested in. You can actually invest time in it. Totally, so, it's a generalist profession, right? We exactly. have to study a little bit of everything, a bit of science, law, yes. history, and all that is necessary for That's so broad for registration. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And ethics as well. Yep. I am going to ask you though the the famous first question now. What, given that your first introduction to architecture was at Uni Open Day and all yes. that convincing worked on you, interestingly, what's your earliest memory of a building or place? I would say it's probably quite different from uh, a lot of Melbourne people because I actually grew up, uh, grew up in Hong Kong, so it's a completely different kind of urban context. Uh, I live in a pretty big housing estate with uh, something like seventeen blocks of thirty-story building. But it was actually not the interior or the apartment that makes me uh, feel like it is kind of the first place that I, I have a very strong memory. But the public area that is uh, connected as a podium that connects all the buildings. So there is a very large public space that becomes a kind of almost like a playground. It doesn't really have a very specific purpose. It's more like a passageway, but it was used as a kind of playground for kids. Single level? Uh, yep, as on the flat surface, so as kind of connecting all the buildings. Uh, what's so special about it is um, an mid-autumn festival, which is also called the Moon Festival. Uh, also called the Moon Festival, we have... Uh, kind of a time that a lot of uh, children will actually go to this podium and have a exciting uh, events of uh, celebration of that festival, uh, bringing like lanterns and then having glow sticks all around. And then the families are actually having um, picnic mats and having moon kicks. It is such a vibrant environment that um, a real community space. Yeah, exactly. So I was quite surprised how it works out in that way. Oh, how wonderful. What yeah. a sweet memory. Yes. And is that where your interest in our public life and public architecture came from, do you think? I guess it probably didn't come from that side because it is something that is inborn and I didn't have that root reading at that time I think I just enjoyed being there but I think that might have been a little bit of the uh, inference of why I'm actually interested in spaces. Fantastic. What, what is the perception of architecture and the architectural community, the architectural discourse? What do, what do people think about the profession in Hong Kong? That's probably quite different from here in the sense that here you got a lot of very well-designed building, which is uh, done by architects, and they are very well-crafted, and there are a lot of consideration in the fellow of the design. But in Hong Kong, there are just too many high-rise, and because the city is just way too dense, in a way that it is very property market-driven. 
as a result, a lot of like uh, uh, residential buildings are considered more like a product instead of a place to live. That's why I would say it is not as it is it, like people have a different perception towards architecture mm. in Hong Kong. That's interesting. A lot of people would critique, though, the kind of investor-driven housing market yeah. in, in Australia, especially in our major capital cities, in, in that way, though. Like, they would, people would really say, oh, everyone's buying this as an asset and they're not regarding the quality of the build, which we've been talking about on the show, about really yeah. high-quality architect-led developer models, um, presenting really beautiful, livable, wonderful, wonderful buildings, a lot of those by... Austin Maynard and Nightingale, yep. the architects involved in that one. I know you've done an episode on this sort of model of housing or you've looked at social housing in Hong Kong. Is that, again, really super different to what we're seeing here? I will say that Hong Kong is interesting in a way that because there are such a big population and a lot of people are actually living in substandard housing, uh, some of them are actually having like really tiny house, like apartment. And then there are people who are actually um, living and illegally in factory buildings. Because Exploding. They, yeah, kind of. Like, because uh, it's kind of illegal in, in, in a sense, but there are people who actually rent out uh, factory apartments for because of the low rent and there are people actually live in there. So I think there is a very high demand for housing. However, we couldn't quite catch up with that that requirement. Well, hear, hearing more and more that it's a almost a universal issue at the moment, especially reports coming in the UK, they're also experiencing yeah. the housing crisis. You have a microphone in London? Tell me more about this <laughs> roving mic that Archie Podcast HK have. Yeah, <clears throat> so basically um, our main studio is in Hong Kong and then I am located in Melbourne, but we also have a lot of like overseas guests. So we have a mic in London, which allows us to actually do guest episode there. We have a, quite a lot of friends there uh, because of um, Hong Kong people kind of quite a lot of students actually study abroad. There are quite a lot of Hong Kong students here in Australia. There are some in UK. And then um, they kind of stay there and continue their professions. That's why we think there are a, quite a huge number of listeners there. We That's why we set up a mic there. How we do it is almost like... Um, yeah, how's the time zone? Uh, time zone, that's a very crazy idea like what we we have to actually check online and see which time slot will work the craziest one is like we have a guest from us and then a guest from uk and then we have hong kong and melbourne for different time zone for different time zone yes one one podcast yeah and someone need to wake up really early and i have to stay like up late something like 11 as a start. Oh, wow, Titus. You work so hard. You also, on, on top of being an architect, working full-time in practice and in Melbourne practice, you also have tutored at university. What have been some of those academic interests 
I will say I'm very interested in hope at the moment. Hope is something that has been around my um, major project for quite a while, and that ties and ties back into what I'm doing now with a little a little bit of education and aged care projects, and that makes me think um, at this really fluctuating world. You have wars in Ukraine. You have that in Africa. You have refugee issues. You have every like stress and kind of daily life that that all adds up in a way that we kind of in a is in a condition that we really need certain types of hope. And I'm very curious how that could play a part in actually physical environment and how that we could design some sort of buildings that embrace that or or provide a type of hope. I think you and I very much have that in common. Yeah. That we, we believe good architecture should be a vehicle for hope and connection and some sort of joy and ambition and, yes. and possibility. But, you know, dear listeners, we're, we're using all these these nice words, but the thing is architecture is about ideas. Yep. And we, we in our work, and try to represent these ideas in a building, try and create the spaces to help support that so that it can thrive into a place. But you, you sometimes take that a step further. What, what is narrative design? Narrative design, it depends on how you define it. There are different ways of considering it. Narrative design could be a direct application of some sort of storytelling. Uh, it could be comes from uh, probably an entire like cultural story. It could be some coming from a fairy tale and then applying to a building in a way that to create some sort of connection and uh, narrative that can let people understand the building differently. In you the can experience also, of the building, right? Yeah, exactly. In, in the spaces that you will feel that story as you yes. move through it. Another way of doing it is through referencing. For example, if you have a uh, kind of natural landscape and you want to get a little bit of connection with that, a way of doing it is through... Uh, representing that with brick pattern. I think it is so important that if we embrace this kind of um, design strategy, people can actually feel connected to the building. They they will treat it completely differently. They'll understand it more than just a box, right? Yeah. Because it's telling their stories. Yep. And feels like it is something that is more important to them than just functional building. And ultimately, that's sustainability. Right? Yes. When you're connected to the building, when you're connected to place, when you want to look after it, preserve it for century after century, yeah, that's sustainability. Because the uh, exact statistic escapes my mind at this moment, but the construction industry produces an enormous amount of waste and and addition to landfill in Australia. Our demolition cycles of buildings, right? Yeah, it is probably also because we didn't have that attachment, so we feel like it is old, then we can actually demolish it and get a completely new building. But it doesn't always need to be like practiced like that. Yeah, when you feel responsible for it, you want to look after it Yes, a bit longer. 
what's the attitude in Hong Kong with urban renewal and demolitions and wow. new builds, old builds? That's such a big topic. I would say they're actually demolishing everything really quickly in a way that all, most of the old fabric got removed easily because there are such a high demand in terms of what uh, what the new build can actually generate a profit. So they try every every method to actually get rid of like old stuff. And now uh, there are a few older districts which is very important to Hong Kong, like Mong Kok and, and Shen Shui Po, which is a very unique, uh, low, relatively low density area with old shops and and very high cultural value that is going to go through some sort of urban renewal. They started with a, uh, a few uh, approval of high rise and that the entire area is basically gentrified and and that kind of result in the reconsideration of the entire area. So kind of sad story, but that's what is always happening. Mm. For very, what's the population of Hong Kong? That is about seven, eight million in a really small city. So it's very dense. I'll say that the building like height now is something like 50, 60 stories now. So on average. So that's a bit crazy to imagine. No, I don't think most Australians could imagine that. <laughs> I, I, I don't think we, we could capture that. And like when we talk about want, wanting to increase density to improve housing availability in Australia, people are talking about medium density, like three to five stories. Yeah, that's something that Hong Kong people also couldn't quite understand as well. The first time I um in Melbourne, I felt like, oh, it's so spacious. <laughs> And what about suburbia? Was suburbia a bit of a shock then? Yeah, I would say so. I I'm I spent less time in the suburbs, but that kind of low density is something that a lot of Hong Kong people actually dream for. Okay. Yeah. Have you done an episode on that sort of urban suburban living? Has it has that come up in your show? Um, not really, but in Hong Kong, there are another type of typology that is actually quite close to that, but not a lot of people live in there, uh, because we have, um, villages in a, and the new territories, which is at the north of the, the city, which is quite far away where the, you have a lot of country parks. And in that area, you actually have some low density village houses as a settlement, which is something that is left uh, behind because of uh, the historic uh, reasons, like a traditional village. It used to be, it used to be traditional village, but uh, there are a type of like permit that allows people from that village to continue to build. So it becomes something that as something like a three-story typical like standard housing that is without designs but that kind of configuration is quite unique to Hong Kong and that's so interesting and under unique license 
Yeah, that's probably coming from the idea of um, uh, traditional families who are the original um, owners of the land can actually get land rights. But that's uh, very controversial, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. You cover so many topics on your podcast. We've been doing it for a number of years now. How many? What's the total episode count? It is now 125 episodes. 125. Congratulations. That's a yeah. round number. Yes. And it has been already two and a half years. I can't believe time flies so quickly. Has it gone Has it gone quickly for huh. you that quickly? Well, yeah. I, I'm on number five at the moment. So. You will get there very soon. <laughs> I think I'll wake up and I'll be 125 <laughs> like you. Maybe on somebody else's podcast. If, if someone has me, has me as a guest on that on that moment. But what has been your favorite topic or your your favorite um conversation that you've had on your show? I will say my favorite one is actually about islandness. We got a group of students from Hong Kong universities, which is still doing their degree, and then they were sharing their experience of going out to a an island called Potoi, meeting the villagers there without knowing them before. And then trying to get them to, uh, trying to help them to uh, paint the wall and then get family with them. Then they try to get a project from uh, the villages to build a little pavilion in the house. So it is quite an interesting self-built experience of doing a, a little pavilion with um, bamboo and metal water pipe, low cost, looks like island uh, construction. It has a swing there and becomes super popular. And that's such a unique kind of experience that I've ever heard. Oh, cool. You wouldn't happen to remember the episode number of that one, just in case listeners want to jump across who understand Cantonese. Probably not at this moment, but I can share as a uh, photo sharing. Yeah, we'll we'll follow up. We'll include a, a photo in our um, uh, Instagram post later this week. You also share a lot of photos in your channel. Yes, Archie Podcast HK. Yeah, with with all your episodes and cultural references. So I even though I can't understand what your episodes are about, I always find it really interesting to look at that material as it's coming through. I actually think I remember the Islander one, that really informal pavilion. Yes. Really democratized, really self-built because anyone can do this. No, you don't even have to be a student of architecture to play around with something like that. Yeah, and that's very interesting in a way that they are so energetic in a way that they want to build something. So they try to approach the people or the places that has the possibility offer them a chance so and it's such a culturally significant place that they try to do that so it's a great work that's fantastic i hope they hope they documented it well i'm i'm <clears> sure i'm sure they did it's a unique unique capture um and as i mentioned earlier you share a lot of cultural precedents <clears throat> meaning that's just films movies poetry, art, things that in, inform architecture and help build up those stories that you say is part of, it's part of narrative design. Um, you share a few words about w- what precedence and the inclusion of cultural precedence means 
means to you and your work and practice? I would say that's very important to keep the culture and the the identity of a place to be alive in a way that um, if we can't identify what's important around us and try to keep the tradition. For example, in Hong Kong, there are a lot a lot of different kind of tradition. For example, in Mid-Autumn Festival, there are fire dragon dancing, things like that, which beca- which has actually becomes something that required preservation because all this um, eliminating of villages and 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 not the older generation as passing away. So we actually encounter a lot of this kind of like valuable cultural items that are gone. So I think it is important not only to keep that kind of tradition and have someone that can follow through, but uh, we can also do something with our built environment and try to capture that and become something that we celebrate or having a community that cares about it and provide them space that can allow these things to happen. It's like that archival work almost or, or another layer to archive keeping. It doesn't just have to be a, a record or a photo or something yeah. in a museum. It's setting up that memory, more of that intangible cultural heritage. Yeah, I always think that city shouldn't be just about demolition. It should be something that is continuous. If you actually look at the lineage of a city, you should be able to read what is in the past, what is in the present, and probably that should carry on through the future. So I'm actually quite interested in if you can keep certain part of it or if you are trying to rebuild, at least reference what is in the past so it becomes part of the city. Because if we look at some Asian city of, or places with a lot of history, you actually can recognize different uh, buildings, elements from different stages. And that is something that is because of modification and people uh, entering the space, having um, some sort of events in it. And that accumulates along the path. And in modern city, a lot of, like, the system didn't work like that. It's just about clearing everything and then rebuilding something that looks great. But I, I really think that historic reference or accumulation of layering is really important. I was just going to say like a layer cake. Yes, exactly. Like, like a layer cake of history. And a lot of ancient cities have that where the archaeologists go back and pick and choose how far they dig. But if our urban fabric had that um, level of detail yep. in it in it to explore and, and to feel through, well, that's my hope really I think for, for cities that – bigger picture that we can also keep things that have a difficult past and a difficult history as an example as a a physical artifact you know even if it's um regarded that you know a particular style suddenly goes out of fashion or a building Mm. represents a really difficult moment in history 
it can still be kept as an example of that and a lesson yep. and as evidence and can be repurposed. I'm thinking about the former um, SS headquarters in Berlin is now the tax office. So was always the scariest building, is still the scariest building in Berlin, but I have a lot of architecture that uh, preserves very difficult moments as evidence, as historical evidence of yep. um, what happened in a society. That is a fantastic example. I think it is really important how we actually understand that that kind of importance and try to connect with all the buildings. I also think like even for smaller scale places like cafe and and or even your home, I think uh, there are potential this kind of personal memories actually accumulate and becomes something that is more complex than and and meaningful. Say more like, like individual personal memory, like the memory of the past owner. Yeah, it will be quite interesting to treat a place in that sense because I think in a way that people are quite disconnected in a way. If you can actually know who is actually living in that place before, it will be quite an interesting take on how you see the place as time goes by. 100%. And in this local area, actually, in the city of Kingston, particularly nearby in Edithvale, I'm hearing rumours and I'm chasing and investigating that there were three houses by Walter Burley and Marion Mahoney Griffin. Really? Very eminent, prominent uh, immigrant architects who came from America to Australia and designed the Canberra Master Plan together and yep. had a really successful career for which Walter got a bit more credit than Marion. And she was absolutely instrumental in the work and worked for Frank Lloyd Wright. So there's a number of their projects around. Um, Rumour has it one is still standing. Mm -hmm. One is definitely demolished. It was a shop front in Edith Vale. But there's a, a number of really interesting projects around and houses also around this area that have an interesting and tangible cultural heritage and I'm hearing aren't on the Heritage Register yet. So I'm chasing down these threads, dear listeners, and hopefully will be a future topic, a future um, podcast session, and maybe the, we can get someone from the Historical Society to come on and talk about this. That's such an amazing idea. That's why I think podcasts or radio is actually important to like, like architects in a way that uh, kinds of create a kind of platform that you can actually have ideas that is buried to be like uh, to be distributed and making people aware of things that they should be oh the most important 100 percent. the most important thing for me on this show is to actually talk to people um to talk outside the architecture and archi speak bubble mm -hmm. which i try very hard not to do and translate for myself sometimes or translate for others uh, because that's not the reality of the real world. And I think it's really important to actually talk to everyday people and talk to people in allied professions, people who are in politics, who are in historians so far we've had, who do parkour, different sort of urban practitioners that use our spaces or create policy about our buildings, who are upstream of our work, even in a way. 
yeah, that's part of my reason why I want to start this podcast in a way that I think that public connection with architecture is so important, and that basically comes from uh, an initial thought of if because I don't know you if you have that experience of uh, staying up late at uni working with a bunch of friends, and then you probably get too tired of actually doing your project and start spinning off the topic and talk about something else, some sort of social issues, some sort of things that is not related, history, things, um, what you think about the world is going, what's the future, very exciting topics, but they are kind of kept within the faculty at that time with those people. So that's why I was thinking if we can actually get this amazing idea to everyone, that is such a good thing. Yeah, it's, it's very much kept way too close to the heart. Yeah, exactly. And people are interested. People love it. These renovation shows, they get huge viewership. But, you know, it's clickbait sometimes. Yeah. In, in and, a way. Yeah. And there are actually a lot of content within the faculty and just casual talks. So that's why I has been feeling that it's such an amazing way to actually let people understand what we are thinking. And in your 125 episodes, like sometimes you've really surprised me over the years with the topics that you've come up and how you link them back to architecture. In many ways, I think it's also somewhat inspired the broad thinking of this show. That, yeah, people are interested. They absolutely are interested. Yeah, because the way I'm trying to run the show is more like I try to use plain language. I try to use daily examples. For example, uh, a recent show that is about underground architecture. I start with talking about um, the very popular game now uh, all around, uh, Zelda, about an underground world, and then tie it back to the history of the underground and then what are we doing, what's underground now. So that actually makes a lot of people being interested and and listening. And I, another thing that I think is important is we invite guests to our episodes and we do not only invite academic guests. We The major guests that is on our show are... Uh, just normal citizens. For example, we have previously a, a, a secondary school student talking about her view about education system. Oh, wow, that's so brave. Yeah, exactly. And what she thinks um, is not uh, good in terms of uh, her education. So that's something that is always coming back. Another uh, category of guests are actually professionals who are using uh, some sort of typology. For example, we have a doctor who came to the show to discuss hospital design and her experience of actually being in the hospital working. That's so important. Yeah. I'm in the healthcare design space at the moment. That's so important to listen to the clinicians. Yeah, and when we talk through her experience, we realized she cares a lot about patient, but she also felt that if hospital is probably 
a place where a lot of people actually die and have their last moment in life, and they're just staring at a like white ceiling with very bright light. It, it wasn't that good as as the experience. No, no, it's not. It's yeah, not dignified. You, you probably last don't、moment. want that as the last moment. No, that's not the. The the way to think about the the last moments, or that's not a good place to die for, for good death. It's actually one of the things that motivated my interest at the moment in healthcare design because I think that's those experiences in life are so important. Those moments are so important. That's excellent work that you're doing on your show. Very important work to have this broad range of discussion as well. Yeah, and we also always ask. Uh, our guests、uh, some open end question at the end of the show. We、uh, in that、uh, episode with the doctor, we were asking her what、uh, she would like to change if she doesn't need to consider money or visibility or constraint. She was saying that it would be really good if、uh, we can have a mini library and hospital, and I think it's such an amazing idea. But it's such a humble request. But it's, it's, it's not much, is it? I know, but it's, it's relatively difficult in Hong Kong. I would say. Ah,、uh, the the space. What are some of the factors affecting that? It's probably they didn't have that mindset of innovation and what kind of human touch as an important part as in buildings. But I think things are improving, but quite in a slow rate. We ha- we're lucky to have some really amazing hospital designs in Australia, you know, particularly in in Melbourne. The Royal Children's has got meerkats. There's aquariums,、um, all all sorts of alternative spaces. There's more and more courtyards that we're doing. More and more places for people to still be within the hospital and be within a clinical environment, but have fresh air, or even like. They could, if they're inpatient, they're really, really unwell. They can still go outside, and the nurses and doctors can take them outside, and they can still be connected to all the tubes they need to be connected to. Um, I'm shocked by the library, the book, things. That request—it's so simple. It's something、yeah. we put、and、in our suitcase.、Exactly. We never read on holidays, but we take it with us. Like the comfort of books. Yeah, exactly.、Uh, what I feel like is that is something actually quite doable. And that, what we follow up usually is what's your first step of achieving that? Because what I feel like is a lot of people are at first place very scared to dream big. So we ask ask them for what's their wish list, and then we also ask for、uh, ask our guests if you really want to do that, what's your first step? That's such a good question. Yeah, because it probably will take quite a long time to actually achieving that. But if you don't take your first step and try to do something,、uh, it will never happen. Yeah, eat that elephant one bite at a time. Exactly, as, as the saying goes. Well, that's that's really awesome. What else has been an unexpected moment on your show for you? What's been a really like unexpected answer? I would say. Because our show is、uh, recorded and is actually recorded for something like two and a half hours to even three hours length, and then we cut it down to forty-five minutes. So 
what we can do is allow the guests to stop and think. We put a lot of very difficult questions that probably take a lifetime to achieve, but uh, they are allowed to actually think about what they will react to that question. And then we try to condense it into something that is smooth and um, easy to listen. But um, we had a guest that suddenly start question start questioning about her own identity in the middle of the show. Oh. And that is possible. And I think it's a good thing because we ask questions about her personal uh, experience. And that's so touchable. I couldn't actually talk about the content, but that could happen. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think podcast is interesting in a way that it allows these things to happen and while keeping like all the audience very engaged yeah it creates a space between you and your conversation yep. partner and your listeners like yeah it's actually right now there's three people and this it's you me and the listener we're all on that together that that's really interesting as well resonates for me to hear the idea that someone started questioning their identity having a really personal moment on the show and it was good contribution to the show, good content, because there's this idea that when things get really personal and they get very, very specific, they actually become universal. Yeah. In a recent episode, we talk about uh, the stress and, and doing architectural design and the mental health issue related to that. In that the profession or in students? As a student. And that becomes such a popular one because actually a lot of people share that experience oh yeah it sounds global as yeah well. it's it, about learning to understand your own emotion and try to have better control and and understanding how you cope with that i believe yeah totally i think there's a of responsibility on on the schools i know it's definitely changed a lot since our time yeah it's, it's it's really quite quite different um, it's it's hard. I think most people don't realize how tough it is for an architecture student until they lose a friend <laughs> to the study <laughs> or they lose a family member and they suddenly disappear into the university and, and they're just working, working, working. But it's it's so worth it to yes. to be able to participate in this profession that. Of course, it's a service and it's a job, but it's also in many ways a privilege. Yeah, because what I think is architects has, uh, the role of architects is changing in a way that is more public facing now. There are a lot of um, bottom-up design, engagement and uh, collaboration design. So it becomes really public facing and engaging in a way that you feel like you can actually create a change it's a lot of interesting groups in, in across Australia doing that too, like Office, who are based in, in Melbourne, who do a lot of, at the moment, they've got a big campaign um, advocating for the refurbishment of social housing and um, really instead of demolition. It very much links, harks back to what we were dis- discussing earlier tonight. Um, there's the Fulcrum Agency that do amazing master planning and consultation strategy with um, remote indigenous communities 
there's there's a number of groups that really anchor anchor their work. I think Public Realm Lab do quite a lot of these mm. sort of testings. This was maybe that um, experimental culture of Melbourne is also what makes being part of the architectural community here really exciting. Yeah, I think that also happens in Hong Kong in a way that like architecture used to prefer distance from like the public in a way that people think architects are just building like people who built for the rich but to like it is kind of still true to a certain extent but it start changing because there are a lot more like involvement and community design and things like that I think another perception change is also coming from uh, the kind of Biennale and different kind of art festival having architects' involvement. And that is bringing a lot of uh, like uh, publicity about what architects can actually do. And how diverse the skill set is. And you exactly. love Biennales. You've participated yes. in a number of them. So what, tell me about the most recent one and what was the involvement of Archie Podcast Hong Kong there? Yeah, the recent one is uh, uh, 2022 uh, Biennale in Hong Kong. And it was a interesting collaboration. We got an invitation from uh, the Biennale to do a series of podcasts with uh, the creator and, and, and also a few uh, exhibitors. So what we tried to do... Um, the 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 Biennale is titled the seat as uh, seats of resilience, so there are quite a lot of growing uh, or emerging practitioners in Hong Kong that is trying to uh, make some changes, and that Biennale actually grouped them. So we were lucky that we uh, interviewed uh, some emerging uh, practitioner working on uh, recycled plastic where they learn the skill set from, I think, Netherlands, and then bring it back and try to self-build some machine. They uh, collect the plastic and then try to make it into some sort of uh, products and uh, education workshop, things like that. So I think it's quite meaningful um, getting that um, connection with this kind of people. So they have a chance to actually let more people know about what they're doing. And was it really publicly attended, these biennales? Like, are the people interested? Are they showing up? Yeah, I would say uh, it's actually quite popular in a way that probably because Hong Kong is, I would say, quite a boring city in a certain way. People tend to uh, go to a lot of cultural events on the weekends so that's something that is a massive event with something like four sites there they were using piers and and reusing uh old spaces so which is quite an interesting take on on the site of biennale and the biennale also display a lot of like upcoming emerging people who are investing their time and material uh, uh, exploration. There are people who are focusing on soil. There are people who are focusing on woodwork. So a lot of craftsmanship. And I think that is probably 
the next wave of architecture, like design coming up. The material coming, innovation. Yeah, exactly. Like more like texture and more fine grain design. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah. I hope everyone's sick of flat and beige and boring. <laughs> absolutely love that. I think I, I joke. This is absolutely a joke because no one's going to make me queen. But if they could, if it could, I, I'd have this rule where you couldn't have more than thirty percent bland, boring, grey, and no blank <laughs> walls. That's my dream. So I've told everyone what my dream secret is. That would be really fantastic if we saw a renaissance of um, texture and material. Doesn't have to be bright and crazy colors, just not flat, right? Yes. All those possibilities. Do you think that was being showcased at Venice? Did you pay attention with sort of what's happening in the news recently at all? Do you, do you think these what? are unique ideas coming from Hong Kong at the moment, or do you think? Um, I didn't actually follow through what happens in Venice, but what I know is uh, every time. When there is a Venice Biennale, there are uh, participation from Hong Kong. So what they will do is they will actually have a group of people creating an exhibition there. So it will be good to know what they are doing this year. I think maybe that's a future episode. Yeah, and, and you can you can fill us in, or maybe one year you'll be able to broadcast from Venice. That will be a very exciting opportunity. Yeah, to re- to report back to, to what's going on. I know I was just thinking about the public being interested in buildings and an increasing interest, and I really hope that's the case globally as well. I, I think it it is. I think people have always cared about the buildings they're in, though, where they where they've lived. We have Melbourne Open House coming up soon. Um, it's a good chance for anyone who wants to have a sticky beak and have a peek inside buildings and places and their, their inner workings. Will you be attending? What's on your checklist this year? I, I know you sometimes have a very busy program for yourself. Yes, I, I actually have mentioned that. Uh, like, like I have done some episodes about open house as well. And I usually have a very crazy like schedule with like something like six, seven buildings on a day across the whole weekend so you're doing 12 buildings in the weekend yeah because it's such an amazing idea is to like have this building opens and some of them are actually like houses you never ever had the chance to get into someone beautiful houses and and understand how the design is so detailedly considered so i think it's a absolutely good idea to do that do they do they leave them how they live, or have they all been decorated for open house? What have you noticed? They're probably newly built, so they are in pretty good condition, I would say. So that is probably like, the best timing to actually look at that. That's exciting. Yep, and I actually really want that to happen in Hong Kong, like in the in a previous episode that I mentioned, Open House. There are a lot of people in Hong Kong were saying that oh, it would be good if we can bring that to Hong Kong because a lot of places that are that are very well designed in Hong Kong are actually quite interior-based. 
it is not something that you can easily access. So if we can have an open house that allowed us to get into these places, that will be a very good idea. I think uh, groups that are interested in brutalism is probably trying to do something with a small version of open house, but that's probably coming. It will be good to see a wide scale open house to be organized. It's a pretty amazing opportunity we have in Melbourne. A lot of work goes into it. We have a lot of festivals on the calendar almost through all throughout winter and then spring's always so busy. It's events like those, most of which are often free, largely free, that makes me feel so grateful to live in, live in the city and have the opportunity to be part of that. Yeah, and Pavilion is another one that I really like and they hold so much so many activities and talks and it provides you so much to do after work yes i always go along to those as well that's absolutely my tick list and this year it's tada and very famous japanese star architect so it'll um regardless of what mm. people think of star architecture and star architects i think it's still very exciting um to have this pop-up albeit for a season in melbourne and then believe the pavilions will move off to their permanent home somewhere else across across the state across the cities yes that's a very beautiful idea of um, creating a piece that as for the city and then we utilize it and i i also think that kind of pavilion idea could actually happen in hong kong and that will benefit the entire like architectural like discourse but there are something that is similar that as in Hong Kong called Design Trust that is recent funding that um, funds small projects and um, uh, self-initiate uh, research. That is, a, I, I think that is a very good opportunity for anyone who has the vision for um, actually providing a change to start approaching them and look for a way to uh, realize things. So it's really small scale, really beginning at the moment. There's no large institutionally supported pavilions like that at the moment. I suspect the M plus museum used to think there are a potential of doing that. It didn't actually happen at the end as like yearly pavilions. So it will be interesting to see if there are a chance. I'm sure if it comes up, your podcast will be all over it. So what's what are the handles again? How can people follow along? How can they get in touch with you as well if they have any uh, questions or, or contributions? I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of Cantonese language speakers and bilingual speakers who are listening along to us tonight who are probably also really fans of your show and want to get in, get in contact with you or start listening to your show. Maybe they discovered it this evening. So our show is on... Um, a lot of uh, podcast platform. You can find us on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, and all other uh, podcast platform. And if you are interested and if you are not a candidate speaker, you can also follow our Instagram, which is HK. And has really great uh, pictures and all sorts of exciting content to follow along to. Well... Tonight's been really, really awesome, Titus. And I have one last question for you. And 
I think you'll have a really great answer to this because you're very much interested in this topic as it's something that really underpins your work and your research and what you try to embed in the students when you're teaching at RMIT is what gives you hope? I would say people. People who has similar belief that you feel like you're not alone and I think this podcast actually helps me a lot in a way that uh, there I receive a lot of DMs from Instagram uh, listeners and they give me the encouragement to continue this podcast. But if you are looking for something that is more physical, you can go to um, the Wetland Observation Tower near Altona. It is a very interesting pavilion uh, that is uh, metal made and has a kind of spiral form, which is a place that makes me feel like hopeful you're the first person that has answered that question with the building i love it yep we're going to get a picture of it we'll put it up on instagram later later this week i look forward to having a look at it i'm not sure i'm familiar with it that's really exciting thank you so much for joining me tonight titus thank you for having me Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. My name is Océane, I come from Martinia and you are listening to Radio Carom. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>